Please turn or scroll in your Bibles with me to Ephesians chapter 3. Again, that's Ephesians chapter 3. We have the privilege, again, of hearing from David Mead this morning, which we also had yesterday. For those of you who weren't here, David is an elder at Christ Church of South Metro Atlanta, nearby in Tyrone. He has served in church planting, local church leadership, and overseas missions leadership since 1975, including the founding of Propempo International in 2003. Propempo is an organization that seeks to come alongside churches to assess, assist in the development of biblical, local church-centered missions ministries, which we are all for. You guys have heard me mention this several times. I'll mention it again. Propempo has a podcast called Missions on Point. I highly recommend it. Okay, Ephesians chapter 3. I'm going to read verses 1 to 13. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers in the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, Though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God, who created all things, so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places." This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the opportunity to gather together and worship you in song and through the reading and preaching of your word. As we sang, Lord, we desire to see people from every tribe and tongue come to faith in you, Christ Jesus, our Savior, and to worship you alone. I thank you for those that you allow us to partner with who are working towards this, both here and abroad, and I pray for them and for us that you would open doors for the gospel to be presented boldly and clearly, and that you would bring many to put their faith in Jesus. I thank you for David and for his preparation for today, and I ask that you would work through him and his words by your spirit for our good and for your glory. Amen. Thank you, dear brother, for your kind words and... uh, reading of God's word that we will open today. It's a delight to be here <clears throat> with you at Baraka. I feel like uh, we, we have a certain kind of kinship of those that really honor God's word and honor Christ, honor the gospel. And so I'm very, very thankful to be with this gathering of saints this morning. As I reflect, especially on a missions weekend, I cannot help but flash back to memories of little tribal gatherings of church members in our Ayang and Ifugao territory and how simple and profound it is to have believers who are of like faith and have come out of darkness into his glorious light because of the gospel actually then sitting around sort of proclaiming their loyalty, their trust in Christ, singing simple hymns, 
their native hymns were in minor keys and were just penetrating. Once you hear them, you can't keep humming them as you're hiking in and out of the village. They're fantastic. But sitting on stones and little pieces of log and just wherever they can find a seat, sitting in a circle at the beginning of a church plant and having communion. So they didn't have grapes growing in their region and they didn't really have grape juice available or any form of grape juice except maybe that which is prohibited kind of stuff. <laughs> um, but they they uh, used a form of a copycat grape Kool-Aid, and they would mix it up in a large cup and pass that around. I don't think that worked very well during COVID. <clears throat> and I prayed the missionary prayer always, Lord, I'll get it down if you'll keep it down, right? And for bread, um, they didn't have much in the way of bread. They had a lot of things connected with rice. They had many terms for rice and all of its stages of growth and all the different ways that you could prepare and eat it. Many different terms for rice. Americans are pretty bland. We say rice, and then you have to define what do you mean by that. But uh, they would use crackers in those little cellophane wrappers like you get in restaurants. They could buy a box of those, and they stayed fresh. And you bust it up in the cellophane, and then you open up the cellophane and pass that around, and everybody takes a piece of cracker. That was our communion service in most of the churches, and certainly in the church plants, sitting in a circle, just reading and explaining God's word week by week. So thank you for the flashback. Thank you, uh, worship team, for your song selection. Great songs. I don't know if you know, but that song, The Reward of His Suffering, was the motto of the Moravian Church, which started missions, and really, they were pioneers of missions work in a time when there was great darkness. The Catholic Church dominated most everything in Western Europe and all around the environs of the Mediterranean. The Moravian Church was one of those early, uh, biblically-minded, passionate for holiness and for Christ kind of Enclaves. They were literally a commune of sorts on the uh, estate farm uh, area of Count Nicholas von Zinzendorf. And their motto was, um, let us go to receive the rewards of Christ's suffering, to bring it in, right? That's the idea. And when they left for missions, they packed their goods in their coffins, because they never expected to return. Few people know that they had a 24-hour, seven-day-a-week, 365-day-a-year prayer meeting. And not only did they have one, people who know they had a prayer meeting, they say, well, that's great. They had a prayer meeting for missions specifically. A missions prayer meeting, 24-7, 365. And it went on for 100 years. Now, the crazy thing is that they actually had two prayer meetings for a hundred years because in their time and culture, and probably even in ours, it wasn't appropriate for men and women to be alone at night, even for a prayer meeting. And they wanted to have the men pray and the women pray, so they had two separate little places. And imagine this, it wasn't like... They could just sit in there, they could, they could pray with their smartphone in front of them in their lazy boy in the living room. They got dressed at whatever hour of the night was their hour, and they went outside in the cold or the heat, whatever, to the spot for the men's prayer meeting if they were a man or the women's prayer meeting if they were a woman, and they, they did tag team prayer for 24-7, 365 men and women for 100 years. That's the kind of commitment they had to see Christ receive the reward of his suffering among all the nations. We are so thankful for your history and tradition here at Baraka, how you have been faithfully supporting and caring for missionaries around the world. You look at the missionary list that you have and are still supporting, and it is a joy to my heart to know that a church like this that loves your missionaries and cares for them, is continuing to pray, to care for them, 
to try to meet their needs and see the gospel reach to all nations. We're going to look at Ephesians 3. I told you yesterday, for those of you who are here, that we're kind of looking backward through the eyes of Paul, and we looked at his life, his early life, just as he was being sent out to be a missionary. And all that that means for missionary preparation, and all that that means in practical terms for how God develops servants of his, even those who were once enemies, and now have become his mouthpiece for the gospel around the world. I do want to make up for something I told the kids' table, that I would tell them how a kid plays into Paul's history, biblically. And I'm just going to give you a verse, and you look it up, or have your mom and dad look it up with you. In Acts chapter 23, verse 16, and you'll have to read around that context, 23, 16, and there was a kid that was very important in Paul's life at that point, and you can look and see how maybe... Uh, you could be involved in missions yourself someday. This morning, uh, if I were to put a title on the message, I would call it the target of Paul's missionary ministry. The target of Paul's missionary ministry. I know you guys are used to really clear outline, so I'll try to give you a really clear outline. Right? The first part is the mystery revealed. The mystery revealed. We'll talk about that. And then the second main point is the ministry revealed. And the third one is the manifold wisdom of God revealed. We're going to get into it as we look into God's word a little more carefully and then see how this picture gets put together. Now imagine the context of Ephesians. Ephesians uh, is... A, uh, a prison epistle. That is, it was written while Paul was in prison. This is toward the end of his life. He's had a very significant ministry in missions. Um, Paul is not in himself necessarily the best model for missions because he had some things that we don't have today. He was an apostle of Jesus Christ. We don't have any capital A apostles today. Um, and he used a variety of unusual methods. And you find mission agencies and some missionaries saying, oh, Paul did it this way, I'm going to do it this way. No, Paul did it a hundred ways. And you could kind of take your pick. Um, in Muslim ministry that we are very closely connected with in Arab Muslim world, uh, there is a little saying that says, when you minister to Muslims, try everything because nothing works. Well, that's a simplification of the fact that there are people groups and areas in the world that are really hard to reach because of their culture, because of their belief system, because of their worldview. They kind of shut out Christianity. They don't even want to hear about it until they come in contact with God's word or by the spirit, the gospel some way, even if it's through the internet somehow or a Christian, and all of a sudden their perceptions change and they begin to ask questions. And you tell them who Jesus really was and they go, wow, really? I mean, I was told differently all growing up, all of my years. That's really different. But Paul, though he is now at the end of his life, is reflecting back over all of this ministry and he's giving the Ephesians and other churches in the area, this is almost certainly a circular letter that went to all the churches of that whole region. He's saying, here's some really essential things you need to know. This is what's on my heart as I speak to you in prison. I want you to know these things. And he unfolds this glorious chapter one we know it as about God's intention for the glory of his grace. How wonderful that is. Who God is in the whole picture and keeping that. And the second one is sort of, the second chapter is a picture of us. How desperate people are. There is no way that people can be saved except by the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is exclusive. No matter what our American philosophies and our inclusivist culture says, the Bible is very clear. There is no other way 
of salvation. We are dead in our trespasses and sins. We have no hope for eternal life and fellowship with God apart from Jesus Christ and his great work of grace and mercy. Wow, that's amazing. But in addition, Paul is reminded that the people in Ephesus and the environs around are not all Jewish people. They don't understand the gospel from a Jewish tradition sense. They understand it as Gentiles. He was sent specifically to be a missionary to Gentiles. That is, those who maybe had no religious hooks to hang things on that made sense in the coming of the Messiah that was promised from the Old Testament. And he says, look, it's been decided by the leaders, but first by God, that Gentiles would not have to become Jewish people or follow Jewish law. Gentiles are included in this inheritance. They have the gospel as freely as anyone else. There is no distinction. We all come to Christ the same way. So whether it is poor Ayangan Ifugao, or whether it is the Arab Muslim in the Arab world, or the Hindu in India, or the lost American who has no religious context in their background, we all come to Christ, all come to saving faith exactly the same way. It's not of our doing, it's because God has made this wonderful provision. Paul takes a turn here in chapter 3, and he starts to become really personal about how he relates to that. And this is the passage that's been read. So the mystery revealed, I maybe subtitle this part, the map of the target. So listen again to these verses in 1 through 6. For this reason I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you've heard of the stewardship, that's an important word in this passage, of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. He focuses now on himself. This is very personal. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Letter A under this is Paul was captive to ministry for his target. We're talking in general. The big picture is the target of Paul's missionary ministry, and he was captive to this. Why? He was called especially for this. While Christians scattered from Jerusalem and then out of Antioch and other significant churches, we may presume, they went wherever they wanted to go. They went wherever it might be convenient. In fact, Jesus actually prophesied this in the Gospels, that men will persecute you and you should go on to the next town and the next town and share the word of the Messiah. Paul was captive to ministry for his target. He could have given up at any time. He suffered all kinds of hardships. In the little personal glimpses we get in different letters that he wrote, we see these kinds of things. He suffered immense hardship. And yet, he was captive to this ministry target. He was not going to turn loose. Letter B, under one is, Paul was a steward of ministry for his target. This is verse 2. Assuming you've heard of the stewardship, this means plan and administration. It's not an insignificant word. It just doesn't mean that he is a steward in the sense of dispensing it any way he wants, but he is administrating it, and it comes out further in this passage. Paul was specifically given instruction, I believe, by Christ and in his experience in the church in Damascus and Jerusalem and Tarsus and in Antioch before he embarked on his first missionary journey, how the local church dynamic was to operate. What was going on here? Exactly how is it patterned? Most Bible scholars believe that the, the New Testament church was actually patterned after the local synagogue in Jewish culture. So there was a plurality of leaders, a plurality of elders. It's what's called in 1 Timothy 3. These 
people who are assigned and recognized by the church as being godly men, godly character, and sort of helping to direct the spiritual direction of the church. He was a steward of this mystery. Thirdly, letter C, Paul was a recipient of the ministry message to his target. In verse 3, he says, How this mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. So reading written briefly, I think, means the first couple of chapters before chapter 3. Here's the stuff that I received. How did he receive it? Well, we looked at it yesterday a bit. He did have some kind of special education under Christ personally. We don't know exactly what all that means, but we can properly infer that at least over time, he understood that he was given this particular task to take the message of the gospel and the outworking of the gospel through local churches established, having believers worshiping regularly together. I think it's a, a, a good parenthesis to think through the Great Commission in reverse. So turn back to Matthew 28. I know you're thinking, David, you're crazy. What do you mean the Great Commission in reverse? In this last little bit of the Gospel of Matthew, it says, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Now, I maintain that Paul understood that you cannot fulfill the Great Commission without planting churches. Look at it sort of backwards. After Christ promised that I am with you always to the end of the age, he's, there's teaching that's going on regularly to observe all that I have commanded you. What is all that I commanded you? By extension, we know, and by implication from the teaching of the rest of the New Testament, the teaching of Christ includes the inspired New Testament, the inspired word of his apostles. So it's not just the red letters in your red letter Bible. It's not just that. It's all from Matthew 1.1 to through Revelation. It's all the way through there. That is the teaching of Christ. So how do people learn these things when they're taught regularly? It's by meeting weekly. Meeting weekly to worship and to attend to his word and his teaching. Who does the teaching? Church leaders, or people approved by the church anyway, people who have studied and understood God's word. You work backwards and it says that there's baptisms taking place, and there's discipleship taking place. What is that? That's the work of evangelism and of Christian nurture, of discipleship going on. So these groups of believers that meet regularly have to be close enough that they can meet regularly. This is not all Christians everywhere around the world. It's not that. So it involves the whole scope, the whole gamut of discipleship, evangelism and discipleship, and the gathering and teaching of the saints on a regular basis. Even baptism, you could say, infers that there are people recognized to do the baptizing. That There are people who at least make sure that the testimony of the new believer is verified, that it's a legitimate testimony of salvation before they get baptized. And that usually involves some kind of a structure of leadership and authority. So all authority in heaven is given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, and so forth. How did the first listeners to Christ interpret this? How did the early Christians interpret this? Well, in short, they planted churches everywhere they went. So I get a little bit riled up if I come across uh, a Christian parachurch organization or agency that says, we're doing the Great Commission, and all they're doing is evangelism. What's the rest of it? It's the discipleship and the baptizing and the teaching regularly, people who are gathered together in one body. Where's that? 
That's a local church every time. Every time. So is it important to do evangelism passionately? Absolutely. We believe in evangelism. But the goal, the target that everything is hitched to is seeing local churches planted all over the world in every nation. That is the big goal. And if it falls short of indigenous churches, that is, churches that are led and maintain and continue in worship and fellowship in the dynamic of the local church by their own local people, then it's not really fulfilling all of the stuff of Matthew 28, the Great Commission. People ask me even yesterday, I get this question quite a bit. So do you visit back to a young and Ifugao often? No, we don't. We're leaving it in their hands. Um, when, when the missionary guy shows up, everybody defers. Everybody says, well, what about this? And what about this? All kinds of questions pop up that maybe they would try to solve themselves. In fact, it was our intention from the very beginning to make sure that it was indigenous. If the local church, even when we were there, had a question, we said, thank you for the question. That's great. Now, here's where to go in the scripture to find your answer. You wrestle with it. And they came up with some unusual answers. But it fit them. In fact, it was almost uh, funny from me as an outsider that as the churches grew and there were more and more churches being multiplied and they were solving their problems using the scripture and prayer and counsel together with their elders, what happened? This side decided to not chew betel nut anymore. You don't really need to know what that is, but look it up on YouTube or something. They didn't chew betel nut. And this side decided we should chew betel nut because it's our culture and God gave us betel nut palms to chew, you know. So what what is that? Well, it made a difference. If you were going to visit a church that didn't chew betel nut, it was safe to walk outside the church near the church walls around the windows because they weren't chewing betel nut and spitting this red juice out the windows at whatever was passing by. If you were visiting a church that did chew betel nut, you dare not walk close to the church building during a service because people are listening to the scriptures and chewing betel nut and they have to get rid of this juicy stuff in their mouth and they're going to spit it out the window, whether you're walking by or not. So those were curious things. I mean, they're asking us, should we chew betel nut? And we said, it's up to you to decide. We are not going to decide as outsiders whether you chew betel nut or not. It's totally up to you and the Lord and the scriptures. Here's some places to go. And they did. But because they did themselves, they honored each other, right? So if a person from the chewing betel nut side visited a church on the not chewing betel nut side, they didn't chew betel nut. And vice versa. I think some people from the not chewing betel nut side intentionally visited churches that chew betel nut. Just saying. From time to time. So that's part of this whole thing of the stewardship and the revelation made known to Paul was how does a church operate? How does that go? What is the, how, how do we proclaim the gospel to people who have never even heard it before? And what impact and application does that make in their lives to follow Christ and to have their life transformed by the gospel? Paul was a specific recipient of that ministry message to his target. And fourthly, Paul was the heir of ministry for his target. In these last verses, he talks about being fellow heirs. The mystery in verse 6 is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs and members of the same body. Well, fellow heirs is a term that would have been understood by Jewish believers because they felt like they were heirs of the oracle of God through the Torah and the law of Moses. And they felt like they were the heirs. They were the ones who were the recipients of God's, of knowledge of God and of God's blessing when you were obedient to the law. And Paul says, no, it doesn't work that way. The heirs are not just the recipients down through a particular channel or chain. 
the heirs are actually family members in God's family. They are adopted into God's family. And you can adopt someone that's quite different than your family chain into your family, and they are fully family members, fellow heirs. And Paul understood this. This was a different concept for Jewish believers and a concept which caused Gentile believers to rejoice. Wow, we didn't grow up with this kind of tradition, but now we own family membership and fellowship with God because of Christ. Isn't that awesome? Remember, his ultimate target is this administration of the mystery, which we're going to see in the next section. The ministry revealed the means of this target. Verse 7 through 9. Of this gospel I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. So again, we see this mystery sort of unpacked for us a little bit. Paul was made a minister. He uses emphatic terminology here. He started in chapter 3 by saying, I, he, he left sort of the course of, here's all the wonderful things about salvation. Now let me explain how this works. And he's saying, this is how it works for me. This is my part in this. It's a very special part. He says, of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace. And verse 8, to me, though I am the very least of all the saints. He had this understanding that he was actually a terrible opponent of Christ and of Christianity. He was a murderer. He was authorized to take people to prison and to persecute them and to beat them and to try to get them to change their faith, to renege on their commitment to Christ. But he was made a minister by God's gift of grace, that is, observable skills, and by God's enabling. I call that verifiable results. It was obvious to see that God's hand was on Paul and his ministry. Everywhere he went with his team, his band of missionaries, there were people coming to Christ. There were people being taught and discipled in the word. There were people being formed into local churches. There were elders being appointed and installed into office. There were churches continuing on in their process of growth and maturity and ultimately of sending and starting other churches because of Paul's ministry. He was made a servant, a minister, Secondly, under ministry revealed, Paul was given a message to preach. Verse 8, to me, though I am the very least of all saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. You know, there is a trend in missions today to soften the delivery of the gospel. To not proclaim it. And it, it's huge. It's not so much in our strongly conservative evangelical circles, but there are whole traditional de denominations out there that everything they think about missions is community service oriented, is social justice oriented, is all kinds of things other than the gospel itself. And so many Christians in those groups or in that trend, in that wave of understanding, um, give billions of dollars to see, oh, sex trafficking or stopped or, or to see all kinds of various kinds of, of slavery uh, stopped in the world or economic advantage or just plain community economic development happen so that you're raising people's life and you're rescuing them from some bad thing like war or persecution or something like that because of their ethnicity, not so much for the sake of Christ, but just in general, 
world problems. And those world problems churn and mix over time, and people think they're doing a good thing. I like uh, Charles Spurgeon's uh, comment to the effect that why should we lift people up and dress them up for hell? The key thing that they need to understand is the one thing that we have that can actually transform their life, their soul, their community as the church functions properly. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's just that simple. That has to be the priority proclamation. And Paul says, I was given this message to preach. This is what I do. I proclaim it. I herald it. I articulate it so that people can understand the gospel. And the Holy Spirit and God's word does the job of drawing people to faith in Christ. He was enamored with the unsearchable riches of Christ. Christ's perfection. Christ's love. Christ's grace. Christ's sacrifice and resurrection. He was enamored with these unsearchable riches of Christ. John says at the end of his gospel, if we wrote down all the things that Christ did and said, there wouldn't be enough books in the world. There would be you know, we could fill all the books and it would be not enough. It just wouldn't be enough. And Paul was infatuated with his love for Christ. Christ is all we need. And Christ is all we have, ultimately, for our walk with God. He loved the unsearchable riches of Christ. And so that's what he preached. That's what he taught. Listen, you want to be saved from your sin? It's not a 12-step method. It's a one-step method. <laughs> it's not a human pathway. It's a divine, miraculous pathway. Because God has taken the initiative to give us the opportunity to know Christ. In verse 9, he says, this is his strategy for staining his ministry. Let her see to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. So he's working up toward this target, and he's speaking of the plan and administration of the ministry again, bring to light what is this thing? How does it work? What's, what's the primary means that God uses, that God wants to see? He's illuminating the administration of the church and highlighting God's plan for the church. Let's go on to number three. The manifold wisdom of God revealed the magnitude of this target. Verse 10, so it was through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. You see, first Paul was charged to show the manifold wisdom of God through the church. It's interesting. This was not known before and now it is known. What does it all mean? Well, you have to understand that in our interpretation of Scripture, in hermeneutics, you, you have to kind of look at all the clues to find out what exactly is meant here in its context. And I'm convinced in most contexts in the New Testament, not all, when it says the church, it really is talking about the local church. Local churches. Not just the church at large, not just the universal church. Like I said before, it's not just about winning people to Christ and Christians everywhere of all time who have trusted Christ because of the gospel. It's not that. It's the local church. And Paul says in verse 10, it's through this local church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known. Well, it's a pretty bold statement for me to say that church should normally be interpreted to mean local church unless otherwise noted in the text or required by the text. How do I know this? Well, there's lots of reasons, and I don't have time for it this morning. But think about it. I already took you to the Great Commission, and you can't really fulfill the whole Great Commission without having a local church present. 
the early hearers of the Great Commission, the first century Christians, believed that because everywhere they went, they planted local churches. All of the New Testament, apart from the Gospels, is written, and you could argue for Revelation, is written to local churches. Look at the names of the books in your Bible. They're almost all local churches, or they're local church pastors. Even those general epistles have notes to the local church in them. So they were designed to be read by and understood and obeyed by the local church. All of them were written for the sake of the local church. That's a pretty strong argument. For every time you see the word church, think first local church, unless the context demands otherwise. So when Paul says, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known, it's okay for us to say, through the local church, the manifold wisdom of God might be made known. So I say, look around the room right now. Take a look around. Look around the room. Go ahead. You can do that. See all these people around you? Somehow, I know it's a mystery, the manifold wisdom of God can be made known through you guys as a local church. The manifold wisdom of God can be made known by a circle of 20 Ayang and Ifugao believers around a fire sitting on stones and tree parts worshiping God. The manifold wisdom of God can be made known that way. How is that so? Well, sir, not about the building or the glorious PA system we enjoy. It's, it's not that. What is it? It's about the love of the saints. It's about how we solve needs within the church. It's about how we solve problems within the church. It's about how we commit to Christ first and to each other to show the manifold wisdom of God over time. I realize at the moment, in the heat of the battle, doesn't seem like it's so easy. Or there may not be a lot of wisdom in your view. And yet, over the long haul, your commitment to live and work and love in the local church shows the manifold wisdom of God. And that's how it's displayed to the rulers and authorities in heavenly places. Who's that? Well, basically, that's the angels who are watching. Peter tells us angels are absolutely mystified to see the grace of God unfold in our local church among the believers. How can that be? They're holy angels, or they're the other side of the angels, the unholy angels. And they're going, wow, God would invest in people like that? God would continue to support and encourage and bless their efforts to be the local church and to honor Christ within their body? Yes, yes, that's true. Verse 11 Paul was driven by the eternal purpose of the church. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord. Christ paid for that already. Christ paid for this local church. Christ paid for the Ayang and Ifugao local church in Bontok. Christ paid for the Ayang and Ifugao church in a hundred different villages. And this was his eternal purpose Always so. Christ paid for the church that has not yet come to be in many ethnicities of the Arab Muslim world. Christ has already paid. It's his eternal purpose to see a local body of believers committed to Christ and his word in every ethnicity of Hindu nations, of Buddhist nations, of tribal nations, of people who deny that there is a God among every ethnicity of the planet. In the last two verses, Paul was confident that God's church would fulfill its intended purposes. He says, it's in Christ we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So do not lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. There is a cost involved. The gospel's free, but it costs something. It does. It costs something to stand for Christ. It costs something to send missionaries to those nations that haven't been reached yet. It, it has a personal cost 
on our life, perhaps on our reputation within that community that doesn't accept Christ. It has a cost, perhaps in our health. It certainly has. I mean, we've, we've got all the wonderful stories from the mission field you can imagine. Snake stories, tropical disease stories, we, we've got that. Check. But it's worth it. It's worth it. Do not lose heart over what I am suffering for you. Do not lose heart over what the missionaries may suffer. Yes, help them, encourage them, try to meet their needs. But don't lose heart. It's worth it. It's worth it. Jesus is worth it. Amen? I'm going to have you skip down to the last verses of this chapter. It wasn't included in our Bible reading. Uh, in between verse 13 and the end of chapter 3, Paul has a prayer, and it includes the nations. He says, all the families of the earth. But here's his vision, which is the pinnacle, actually, of all of Ephesians. He says this, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. To him be glory in a local church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. In the scope of this, hermeneutically, you could say this is the universal church. But again, I'm going to argue this. It's not the undefined sort of unnamed universal church everywhere. This is all the local churches collectively. So Paul is saying, if you're in alignment with these priorities, if you're in alignment with this great target of ministry, you understand the message and the ministry itself, the results of the ministry, the magnitude of it all, God is going to be glorified in fantastic ways. When we look at these last verses, I am guilty, as you may be also, of skipping over the church part. We read it like this. God is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power at work within us. To him be glory in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. And we go, yeah, amen. That's cool. Great. May God be glorified in Christ Jesus forever. That's not what it says. In the church and in Christ Jesus. We, we sometimes skip over that in the way we think about this benedictory, this victory prayer for the church for all generations. But it means in the church. How serious are we about this? Well, look at chapter 5. Paul is talking about the church again, and he talks about, we, we use this in weddings, right, for the husband's sacrificial love for his wife. But this is what he says. Christ loved the church, verse 25, and gave himself up for her. And I'm not going to read the whole passage, but you, you read it thinking this in mind. This is, this is Christ's love for the church, self-sacrificing to the death for the local church. You think this was important to Christ? Yes. Was this important to Paul? Yes. Is this important to you? Yes. Is this important to me? Yes. This great understanding of the target of ministry and its practical outworkings in our lives helps us to be more committed to our local body, to love each other well. And it helps us to love missions in a way to see more local bodies planted like that. Right? So it's my contention that all of missions should be pointed in that direction. That's the target we're looking for. So if you're a publisher, if you're a missionary pilot, if you're a, if you're a mechanic, if you're an MK school teacher, if you're 
uh, a distributor of literature, if you're an evangelist, if, if you're in sports ministry, whatever ministry you're in, you need to have in mind and an actual goal of connecting it to seeing vital, vibrant local churches planted. That's when this blessing of the benediction of Ephesians 3 actually comes into play. When we're in alignment with God's purposes and God's end target, that's when we see him do all of these hyper words in Greek. Far more abundantly than all we ask or think according to the power that has worked within us. Far more exceedingly more than we can imagine. This verse is not for the person in school who has not studied for their exam and said, Lord, you know, I haven't studied, but please do far more than I understand. No. It's not for the guy who wants to have a date with the girl. Hey, Lord, I'm nothing. She doesn't really know me, but please do exceedingly abundantly far more than I... No, it's not, it's not that kind of promise. It's not personal to you for those Selfish kind of purposes. Study. Don't worry about the girl. You be the right guy. Right? So this is ultimately for fulfilling God's purposes explained all through the rest of chapter 3 that we've been looking at. When we pray in that way, God will do exceedingly, abundantly, beyond all that we ask or think according to his power at work within us, to him be glory in the local churches everywhere and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Amen? That's where we are today. Exulting in the unfathomable riches of Christ. Understanding the priority of the gospel to bring people in, but not just to bring them in to saving faith but to see them congregated, if you will, in little or big bodies of Christ that love him and worship him and portray him in their dynamic as a local church and continue to have that vision for a church planted in the next village and the next village and the next village. One of the, it was, it's, again, it's almost humorous to us that the Lord used us because we didn't know one end of the stick from the other when we went to the field. We knew a little bit about church planning. We'd done that. But our our untrained, you know, unbiblically read tribal people, and here they are, they're learning the scriptures for the first time. Well, how do I treat my wife? I won't go into the stories, but it's like, they, they didn't have a word for like affectionate love in their language. So they said one of the most impactful things they saw from the Bible school is Kathy and I in our house on the other side of the Bible school in the evening, we would go walking, holding hands down this long, hilly dirt road out to the main dirt road and back. It was only half a kilometer or so there and then half a kilometer back. And we were just debriefing from the day and talking and praying and our, and our little kids at our knees and running around, getting in the field, trying to avoid snakes, whatever. And but we just did that. They didn't know what we did, but they didn't do that in their culture. And just to see us, not big implications, just simply showing love to each other, holding hands, walking and talking in the evening. They said that was one of the most impactful things. Well, think about that. Don't think too long because what about all that other teaching I gave? Huh? But as they were forming churches and as they were multiplying, we just told them, you know, we think it's what the Bible wants us to do to plant local churches. So you just figure out what village is near you that hasn't had the gospel yet. And you keep going there. Doesn't have to be the same person, but someone from your church fellowship, keep going there and talking with people and showing them the gospel from God's word. And when they come to faith, then your church can help some of those early believers get baptized. And when they have enough, you plan a church. 
even if you have to sort of service it from your church by somebody going and teaching week to week, you do that. You just plant a church in the next village that doesn't have one. And they believed it. And they did it. It was truly not of our work whatsoever. It was God doing the work. It was fantastic. So when we started with eh, maybe 12 poorly formed little groups meeting to just read God's word and pray, when we left, there was 100 churches with at least 25 baptized believers and plurality of elders. Now they were meeting out in the open or in very simple bamboo little chapels, dirt floor, look out for the beetle nut spit, all of that. Um, but simple, humble, we were training those leaders to be able to understand and teach God's word better. It, it was just incredible. And let me tell you, when we left, it kept going. It wasn't dependent on us. We weren't the original leaders. We didn't cast a shadow. They were just, they were doing what the Bible said and trying to understand it. They came to us if they had specific problems, particularly theological issues that maybe popped up. And they would ask for advice and we would do the same thing again. Listen, you have the word. So let's look into the word. Let's figure it out from the word. Let the word be your authority, not the missionary. So year by year, we just saw God's hand on that. So now one of the guys that I discipled is actually a missionary sent from this church association to an area that I can't go to. It's dominated by communist insurgents, actually. And so the police and the Philippine army don't even go in there. It's over a little ridge next to the eastern shore on the Pacific, and it's a big group of people speak their own language. So our Ayang and Ifogal guys are learning that language. <laughs> and giving them the gospel and raising up a church there faithfully. They're supported by beans and rice and eggs and chickens and a little bit of farming that they do, a little garden. That's, that's what they do. And John Bahangna, one of the guys that I knew and raised up as an elder in a local church near us, the tribal church, is one of those two families that are there now. So I'm expecting to get a Facebook post any day now. Hey, we congregated. You know. <laughs> Let me tell you, to understand Paul's ministry in hindsight from this prison, looking back and saying, guys, this is the stuff that's most important. You need to understand it. You need to understand that the gospel is prime. Jesus Christ is all we have and all we need. The local church is how God works that out in the world. And God gets glory from that. His wisdom is seen. And it is something that may cost you something, but it is in line with his eternal purpose. It may be hard, but it's worth it. I'm going to just close in prayer right now. Father, thank you for your goodness in allowing us to have this scripture in front of us that gives us a glimpse into Paul's heart and his vision for ministry throughout his entire ministry missionary career and now finally reflecting on that and expanding it out to the churches in Ephesus and around that region. Thank you that it expands to us. Thank you that you loved us. Thank you that you brought us together. May we be a local church in which the wisdom of God would be displayed, your eternal purpose displayed. May we be the kind of church that would reach out to others, not just here, but around the world. May people see in us the dynamic of people that love Christ passionately and proclaim the gospel. It's in his name and for his glory alone we pray, amen. Judge, if you'd stand with us, please.
the cause of Christ the King, we give 